They were big in the 1990s. They annoyingly pulled the hairs on your wrist, but they served as the irresistible voice of your conscience. So effectively did they keep you on the straight and narrow that they almost put the Holy Spirit out of a job. They are WWJD bracelets. Uh, Wristbands, often made of rubber, which inflicted great pain when they gripped your arm hair, with those four initials printed on them. WWJD. What would Jesus do? You simply slip them onto your wrist uh, for a foolproof, all-day reminder to do the right thing. So, imagine you're about to rob a bank. You're standing outside in the street. You've got your toy gun, which you'll wave in the face of the teller. You've got your walkie-talkie, so you can communicate with the getaway driver. And you have your big sack with swag printed on the side. You don your ski mask. You glance at your watch to make sure you're synchronised with your fellow robbers. And you notice your wristband. What would Jesus do? And you go... Oh, yeah, probably not rob a bank. So you take off your ski mask and go about your law-abiding business. Or you're on the golf course and you have a terrible lie. And so, while your partner is not looking, you discreetly move your ball with the heel of your club to a smooth, flat piece of grass. Then, with a beautifully pristine conscience, you address the ball and are just about to begin your backswing when you notice, glaring at you like a math teacher who is watching you cheat in a test, your WWJD wristband protruding from the sleeve of your sweater. And you think, what would Jesus do? Oh, shucks. He'd replace the ball and call out to his partner, Sorry, I just moved my ball. That's a penalty stroke against me. Well, now there is WWJSL. What would Jesus smell like? An Illinois-based company called His Essence have made some scented candles that they claim give off the same aromas that would have gathered around Jesus. The biblical inspiration for this is Psalm 45 verse 8. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. So, their standard scented candle smells of myrrh, aloes and cassia. But there are more in their catalogue, including a new one just in time for Christmas called Adoration, inspired by Matthew 2 verse 11 and the gifts of the Magi, gold, frankincense and myrrh. I checked their website to see if they make a John the Baptist scented candle or one called Construction Worker. It seems they don't. Which is a shame, because if they did, we'd surely have to have it in the Advent wreath today. Because on this second and third Sundays of Advent, we are confronted with the brooding presence of the aromatically challenged desert dweller, John the Baptizer, in all his camel hair glory. That construction worker reference... 
Well, according to the Hebrew prophet Isaiah in today's first lesson, John's job was to be a road builder. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God to Isaiah. Speak compassionately to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service has ended. A voice is crying out, clear the Lord's way in the desert. Make a level highway in the wilderness of our God. Every valley will be raised up and every mountain and hill will be flattened. The Lord's glory will appear and all humanity will see it. Here is your God. Like a shepherd, God will tend the flock. He will gather lambs in his arms and lift them into his lap. He will gently guide the nursing ewes. The Messiah, the one who is to come, will shepherd people, lift them, nurse them, cuddle them. But before he arrives, there's work to be done. There are hills to level, valleys to fill, desert terrain to explode. Mark, in the Gospel lesson, is typically brief and matter-of-fact in his announcement of John's arrival onto the stage of God's unfolding drama of salvation. Mark is the briefest of storytellers. He has urgent business, no time to waste with lavish descriptions and flowery details. So to get the full picture, we need to listen to the poet Isaiah with his vision of Semtex and bulldozers. John's task was to prepare the way for the Lord, to make crooked paths straight, to level hills and fill valleys. He was more than just the warm-up act before the headliner took the stage, more than the salad before the steak. John's job was to remove obstacles, to detonate mountains and hearts, getting things ready for the Messiah. Thanks to John, the Saviour would have a smooth, straight, flat path to tread, rather than a steep, rough, twisty one. Lowering mountains, filling in valleys and straightening roads. John the baptizer was God's bulldozer. Not the most delicate of instruments, certainly not the most beautiful, and not one you'd want for your everyday mode of transport. You don't buy an earth mover for its versatility, and neither do you pick John to be a diplomat or a kindergarten teacher. You wouldn't want to live with him. You certainly wouldn't want him as your parish priest. He'd upset too many people. He'd be terrible at cocktail parties. He'd bring bugs to share at coffee hour. But for the job God called him to, John was the perfect pick. Deep in his unfathomable imagination, God had a shocking plan. A project so grand and so mysterious that only this crude instrument, John the Bulldozer, could perform the task. God had drawn up the blueprint for his construction job before the beginning of time. And now the day was dawning near for work to begin on the grandest structure in creation. A structure that would one day fill the entire world. The kingdom of God. 
It would be completed by a man on a cross and the emptiness of a tomb. Before that conclusion, though, there were obstacles to be moved, ground to prepare. Enter the bulldozer. Say what you like about God, but he's never boring and rarely predictable. Just look at creation. 10,000 species of birds, 20,000 species of butterflies, 91,000 species of insects can't be wrong. Then there are legions of landscapes. What's your favourite? Oceans or deserts or forests or vast open expanses of prairie? My favourite is mountains. I've never done any serious hiking and certainly never any rock climbing with ropes, but I've strolled to the top of the highest mountains in England and Wales and marvelled at how glaciers can create such beauty. I've stood at the top of the Rockies and watched cars like ants. I've sat in the foothills of the Tyrol, sipping apple juice, gazing at the jagged peaks and been transported to heaven. And so I read this description of John the Bulldozer's mission and my heart sinks a little. Clear the way in the Lord's, uh, the Lord's way in the desert. Make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. Every valley will be raised up and every mountain and hill will be flattened. Really, Lord? Can Jesus not come without destroying mountains? Must Austria become like Nebraska? And then I think about the coming of Christ. Now, today, to me. And I realise that however beautiful mountains may be, when you want to travel somewhere, they tend to get in the way. My son Rob and I discovered this four years ago on vacation in California. We had spent an idyllic Sunday in the mountains, Kings Canyon National Park. Mid-afternoon, we left that parcel of glory and made our way to the western side of the state, around a 100 miles as the crow flies. We'd be at our destination by dusk and devour the hearty meal that the mountain air had prepared us for. But in my planning for that trip, I had failed to consider that 100 miles as the crow flies is a very different distance when you need to cross the high Sierras. In all, our journey lasted six hours and took the form of a 250-mile expedition in which we almost ran out of gas, endured a storm in the pitch blackness of mountain passes, while visions of bedding down in the car overnight at the side of what passes for roads up there, only to become breakfast for bears, danced menacingly in our heads. And so here's what we learnt as that glorious day deteriorated into that horrific night. If all you're going to do is sit and look, mountains are great. But if you want to get anywhere, straight and smooth is God's gift to you. Mountains and valleys may look wonderful, but they make journeys difficult. 
John the bulldozer was not in the vacation business. His job was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And the Messiah whose way he prepared was not on holiday either. The scenic route was not on his itinerary. He was coming with a purpose, a single-minded pursuit of his God-given mission to build the kingdom of God. What would Jesus do? Not climb mountains. It's the second Sunday of Advent, and there's a big, bold, slightly daunting question hanging over John the bulldozer as he trundles his way across the countryside. How are we getting ready for Christ? Last week, we thought about the return of Jesus in a grand, never-to-be-repeated, apocalyptic event. Today, we're thinking on a smaller scale, the micro-coming of Christ, the one that happens to you and me today and tomorrow, the one God is planning for us right now. Get ready, Christ is coming. Each day is a fresh opportunity to spot him standing at the door of our lives. The pre-Raphaelite painter Holman Hunt called his most famous work Light of the World. It depicts Jesus standing at a door. At least, it used to be a door. Now it looks more like a wall. It has been an eternity since it was opened. Weeds and brambles have grown over it, chilling testimony to the passage of time since the door was last opened, if indeed it ever was. Jesus has a look of kindness on his face. He wears a crown and carries a lamp, and with his other hand, he knocks at this ancient, rusted door. This is a Jesus who has so much to lavish on the residents of this house. Light, warmth, love. But this Jesus doesn't force himself in. In fact, he cannot unless he takes an axe to the door. You see... There's no handle on the outside. This door, the door of a man or woman's life, can only be opened from the inside. So what mountains in your life need levelling in order to make way for the Messiah? What valleys, what potholes, what divots need to be filled so that Jesus can come to you? What are the twisty, windy, meandering roads in our lives that could do with straightening out if the journey of God into our hearts is to happen? If God is going to come to me afresh this Christmas season, what needs to change in my life? If I'm to experience his love, his peace, his joy and his compassion, what has to go? What would Jesus do? He would stand at the door of our hearts and knock. But before he can enter, we need to experience the work of John the bulldozer, exploding the hills of ego, consumerism and acquisitiveness, filling the hollow valleys of hard-heartedness and apathy that have eroded, straightening the twisty, curvy roads that have sapped our energy and wasted our time. What would this smell like? A breath of fresh air, the aroma of new starts.
Amen.